All right, I hope you guys aren't celebrating too much when you see an article titled The End of Jurisprudence. Uh, as you saw, that title has a double meaning, and maybe not just the one that you were hoping for. Well, here, Scott Hershevitz's article is going to try to argue for, I don't know, maybe a third way or a different way of seeing things that gets us out from under what he clearly sees as a tiresome heart dwarken debate. One thing I really like about this article is its rich use of examples to motivate us to understand why these debates matter and and to illustrate what various positions really are asserting. And he starts with this example of the speed limit, you know, and which we've used in class before and it's a pretty obvious one. You see a sign that says speed limit 35 miles per hour. Now, upon seeing that, you might have a bunch of questions. And those questions might include things like Whoever put that sign there, why did they decide that the limit should be 35 miles per hour? Why, why is, maybe what we'll call the law, why is that the law? You know, in, in the sense of why not 25 or 45? What are the reasons for that? Another question you might have is, why is whatever it is that they set the law? Okay, so there is this sign here. It purports to set a speed limit. It looks like a communication to me about what I should do. But why is that the law and not maybe the person on the side of the road shouting, hey, go as fast as you want? Why is that shouting not the law? So so what is it that makes something the law? Well, this is what we've been talking about for a little while now, right? A- another kind of question, though, is is either integral to that question, if you agree with Fuller, the question of why is something the law, or it is a further question, if you agree with Hart. And that is, whatever the status of this thing is the law, should I obey it? Okay, so even if it is the law that the speed limit is 35 miles per hour, for whatever reasons, should I obey that law? One thing we see here is a connection between the question about whether something is the law and the question of whether one should obey it or where it gets its kind of obligating power from. We've seen disagreement over that question, but let's take it this way. Hershevitz questions throughout and argues against the idea that law creates what he calls a distinct domain of normativity. Okay, a distinct domain of normativity. What is that? It just means an identifiable set of reasons to say that something should be the case, right? So normativity means, you know, this is the, um, the status of something as arguing for a should, right? That you should do something. And a distinct domain of normativity is, well, it's, a, it's this kind of distinct set, identifiable set of reasons why something should be the way that it is. Moral reasons are a kind of domain of normativity. When we consult morality, we find reasons to do something. Again, the should or the ought. Aesthetic reasons. You know, when I build a building or I design something or, or even when I move around, maybe I have aesthetic reasons for behaving the way that I do or designing something the way that I do. And you might say that aesthetic reasons are somehow different than moral reasons. It seems a, a misuse of words to say that I am morally bound to design a beautiful house. And, and also maybe there are prudential reasons, reasons by definition sounding in prudence that seem, again, different than moral and aesthetic reasons. So each of those is kind of different. And maybe legal reasons are also in a distinct domain of normativity. So that is kind of the positivist position in a way, right? That you can have a legal reason to do something which is separate than a moral reason to do something. Well, Hershevitz kind of maps out terrain that we've seen mapped out before. It's worth repeating here at the beginning. Exclusive legal positivism is that theory which says that the law 
can be identified based on, well, only on what people have done, thought, ways that they behaved. There are some social facts, right? And only by looking at those social facts. All we have to do is look at what people have done or the way they've behaved. Anti-positivists, like Dworkin, say that identifying law requires moral judgment or, or some other normative fact, not just neutral occurrences, not just behaviors. So, so for Dworkin, identifying the law requires this moral exercise of fit and justification, justification within a framework of political morality. And of course, inclusive legal positivism, with which we might identify Hart, says, okay, someone who's identifying the law might need to consult moral reasons, but only if certain social facts so dictate. So only if, for example, we can identify under an ultimate rule of recognition a constitutional command which requires us to make a moral judgment, like deciding whether a punishment is too cruel uh, to impose. Here's one of the main stumbling blocks that positivists have had to deal with, and that's Hume's objection. And we're not going to get into you know, a, a huge debate over this, but, but here's the upshot. How does an ought follow from an is? In other words, if you find something that is in the world, how can you attach to that some kind of moral obligation or some kind of obligation generally? To say things ought to be a certain way is different from saying that they are a certain way. And just observing that things are a certain way, that people do in fact go to the movies on Friday night, or people do in fact do this or do not in fact do that, just observing things that are doesn't logically entail that you should behave a certain way. In other words, the conclusion that you should do something is different in kind from the conclusion that people do, in fact, do something. And, and so the claim is that if positivism identifies law just by identifying what is, then it can never really explain how things ought to be. One solution to this is one that some positivists have taken, and, and that's to say that the ought is only from the perspective of the law. Okay, well, what does that really mean? It means that from the perspective of the legal system, which I guess really means people within the legal system who believe in the law somehow, that you have an obligation. Jules Coleman writes that it's shorthand for saying, and here I quote, there's an, there's an underlying moral theory that is implicit in the existence of law, according to which the law's directives not only turn out to be systematically connected to one another and thus satisfy the demands of rationality and coherence, but also turn out to be morally legitimate. I don't know exactly if that means that legal normativity is kind of an emergent property from the legal system or that there's a certain morality of the legal system. And to say that something is legally required is to bring with it all of the kind of ethics and morality of an integrated system. Okay, and enough about that for now. Hershevitz says that there's a way out of this. He says, we could abandon the thought that, in addition to their moral and prudential upshots, legal practices have distinctively legal upshots. All right, what does that mean? Well, here he gives another great example, the beach house that has these signs in it. You know, this is the, the rental house at the beach. You know, one of these signs says, leave your cares at the door. And the other says, no smoking. All right, what are we to make of these rules? And he goes through it, and I'll, I'll leave you to most of it. But the key is that analyzing your obligations here doesn't invoke some kind of distinctive domain of normativity. You don't think of these as like beach house obligations. That when you're thinking about whether to follow such rules and what it means to follow such rules, that you're kind of using your kind of ordinary moral reasoning, your ordinary 
thoughts about your obligations to other people. You don't think about the set of special rental house obligations. He also gives the example of official rules of chess. And we've talked about games before in class. And he says the official chess rules don't exist in a vacuum. They have a history. And it's only in light of their history that anyone has any reason to care about them. So the social facts of the situation give rise to ordinary attitudes of obligation. Again, the way forward is to see legal obligations as ordinary obligations, where legal, in describing legal obligations, is just an adjective describing the source of those obligations, kind of like family obligations. If I have an obligation to my family, I, I, I think of that as kind of a moral obligation. There's not a difference. Uh, legal obligations and, and moral obligations can conflict in the same way that any two moral obligations could conflict. For example, I make a promise to one of my kids to take them out to the movies, and yet I, something happens with my mother and she needs my help, and I can't do both of those things. My family obligations are pulling in two different directions. My moral obligations are pulling in two different directions. And that's not unusual, even within just the distinctive domain of morality. So too, a, a legal obligation can conflict with a moral obligation. So this position that Hershevitz is taking isn't quite positivist, nor is it quite anti-positivist. In some ways, saying that your obligation to follow the law is a moral obligation like any other, it seems a bit like Dworkin, right, that you can't identify the law without morality. But it's not really that, because Dworkin, as Hershevitz says, Dworkin took morality to play a part in determining the content of distinctively legal rights, obligations, privileges, and powers. Whereas, and here I'll go back to myself, uh, Hershevitz, what he, he says that there's not a distinctive domain of legal normativity at all. So while legal conclusions and conclusions about what the law is, while those may be identified with social facts, they are part of our history, they are a source of things which we might view as obligations. The question whether they are obligating, right, is no different than any other question of whether something is morally obligating. Hmm. I'm going over this pretty quickly, and we'll have a lot more to talk about, but I wanted to keep this one short. I'll leave you with this question, though. Is all of this really different than Hart's view? Let me just give you two elements of it. So first, ultimately, legality is determined by mutual acceptance of a social practice right? This is the ultimate rule of recognition, that you need to, there needs to be acceptance, at least among many officials, of a certain social practice. And they must take an attitude that adherence to that practice should guide conduct. That's the internal point of view, right? So they accept the ultimate rule of recognition from the internal point of view. There's got to be mutual acceptance of some social practice, like adherence to the Constitution, but accompanied by an attitude that that practice should, in fact, guide conduct, so that when someone deviates from that practice, you can criticize them on that ground. Okay, so that's one part of Hart's theory. And the second is that the morality of following a law so identified under such a system is a further moral question. It's not a metaphysical question concerning whether the system is a legal system or whether something really is the law. They're really two separate things. There's the question of whether something is the law under a legal system, and that's a question of identifying the social practice that is the ultimate rule of recognition, and then identifying rules which are identified by that rule. But then there's the further question of whether the rules so identified should be followed. 
And Hart doesn't let you off the hook just because you identify something as the law. You still have that moral question. Now, is this really different? Does Hart really think that there is a distinctive domain of normativity? And if not, how does he get around the Hume objection, the ought from the is? All right, I'm going to stop it there and ask you guys to think about this, and we'll talk about it when we get together. (laughs) 